Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. At first glance, the cases we're talking about today don't seem to have all that much to do with one another, but if we take a closer look, we see that they share this in common. They involve contested boundaries between the institutions of the national government, and so they involve the separation of powers. The separation of powers is a feature of the Constitution. It's a reality of the constitutional structure that is implicit in the constitutional choices made in Philadelphia in 1787. But there's no separation of powers clause in the Constitution or set of clauses that mark the precise boundaries between the institutions of the national government. And as you recall in the Federalist Papers, Publius dismissed textual solutions as what he called mere parchment barriers to the spirit of encroaching power. The assumption underlying the Federalist defense of the Constitution is that human beings are by nature ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. And so the separation of government powers responds to that reality of human nature. Power shouldn't be concentrated in any one person's or one department's hands. Instead, the powers of government should be separated and vested in different institutions. But what will be the means of maintaining the separation of powers in practice? What prevents one department from abusing its own authority or encroaching on the legitimate powers of some other department? Again, not mere parchment barriers, not simply textual descriptions of the boundaries between the departments. Instead, Publius argues in Federalist Number 51 that the only answer that can be given is that as all these exterior provisions are found to be inadequate, the defect must be supplied by so contriving the interior structure of the government as that its several constituent parts may, by their mutual relations, be the means of keeping each other in their proper places. That was how they wrote in the 18th century. If he were writing today, he might simply say that power in one institution has to be checked by power in another institution, that these powers have to be carefully calibrated so that they balance each other. That's what the common phrase checks and balances is really all about. Now, two things to note about this. First, when the founders talk about the powers of government, they have in mind three distinct and specific kinds of power, legislative, executive, and judicial. And when they talk about the separation of powers, they mean the separation of legislative, executive, and judicial power in different institutions. It's not like there's just this one thing called power, and it's shared between three different institutions. That's the limitation of Richard Neustadt's famous formulation that the Constitution creates separate institutions sharing powers. It does that, yes, but they're sharing distinct kinds of power, and the power is understood by its function and its purpose. Legislative power is about deciding policy, determining law and directing the organization of the government and society. Executive power is about enforcement of the law and the defense of the community against external threats. And judicial power is one of judgment and the application of the rule of law to particular disputes. Second, the Constitution treats these different powers differently, and one key to seeing this is to look at the difference in the vesting clauses in the first sections of the first three articles. Article 1, Section 1 says, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. Notice the qualifier, herein granted. Congress doesn't exercise all legislative power, but only the legislative powers granted in the Constitution. The national government exists for discrete purposes, dealing with issues of national scope, and that's reflected in the limited grant of powers to the national legislature. 
Article 2, Section 1 says, The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. There's no such qualifier in Article 2. The executive power is vested in the president, not all executive powers herein granted. Article 3, Section 1 says something slightly different than Articles 1 and 2. It says, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Like Article 2, there's no qualifier to the judicial power. It's not all judicial powers herein granted. It's the judicial power, but it's vested not only in the Supreme Court, but also in inferior courts, courts below the Supreme Court that will be created by Congress. Then there are throughout the Constitution exceptions to the general rule that these three different powers are vested in three different institutions. In the case of impeachment, for example, the House of Representatives acts as a prosecutor and the Senate acts as a judicial body to conduct a trial. But this is a political and not a legal process. The penalty of impeachment goes no further than the removal from office. There are other examples like that throughout the Constitution of limited exceptions that prove the rule of the separation of powers. At first glance, that all seems pretty straightforward, but it gets complicated in practice. The three cases we're exploring today each bring up questions that can't be settled simply by recourse to the constitutional text, because the text doesn't specifically address the controversy, at least not in an explicit way. And so the constitutional understandings being put forward by the various justices in these cases are informed by things that go beyond the text, whether to history or theory of the Constitution or to some normative conception of the proper scope of executive or legislative power and about how disputes about the separation of powers ought to be resolved in the first place. That all sounds pretty abstract still, so let's drill down on these concrete cases. Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer in 1952 involves President Harry Truman's steel seizure order. Powell versus McCormick in 1969 is about whether Congress can refuse to seat a representative who's been duly elected. And INS versus Chad in 1983 is about a one-house legislative veto provision in a statute about immigration. We'll take them one at a time, starting with Youngstown. In 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea, and the U.S. committed troops to the region to protect its ally, South Korea. The war effort required the production of steel for munitions and military equipment, but in 1952, the United Steelworkers Union called a strike during a labor dispute, and the strike would have crippled U.S. fighting capabilities. President Harry Truman then issued an executive order directing the Secretary of Commerce to seize and operate the nation's steel mills. Executive Order 10340, dated April 8, 1952, 9.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, says this. By virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, and as President and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the United States, it's hereby ordered as follows. And the first thing that follows is an authorization of the Secretary of Commerce to take possession and operate the plants listed in the order, determine the conditions of employment for those workers in those plants, and bargain with representatives of the workers' union. The order then specifically lists 87 different privately owned businesses, including Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company from Youngstown, Ohio. Can the Secretary of Commerce just seize and operate private steel mills at the president's order? That's the question of Youngstown. And the Supreme Court's answer is no, the president can't do that. But the interesting question is, why can't the president do that? And are there circumstances in which the president could do that? Justice Hugo Black, writing for a majority of the court, summarized the issue at stake. He wrote, We're asked to decide whether the president was acting within his constitutional power when he issued an order directing the Secretary of Commerce to take possession of and operate most of the nation's steel mills. 
The mill owners argue that the president's order amounts to lawmaking, a legislative function which the Constitution has expressly confided to the Congress and not the president. The government's position is that the order was made on the findings of the president that his action was necessary to avert a national catastrophe, which would inevitably result from a stoppage of steel production, and that in meeting this grave emergency, the president was acting within the aggregate of his constitutional powers as the nation's chief executive and commander-in-chief of the armed forces. There was no statutory authorization here. It was just the president asserting that power to issue this order was inherent in the position of chief executive and commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Justice Black and five other members of the court didn't buy it. As the majority opinion concludes, the order cannot properly be sustained as an exercise of the president's military power as commander-in-chief of the armed forces. We cannot, with faithfulness to our constitutional system, hold that the commander-in-chief of the armed forces has the ultimate power as such to take possession of private property in order to keep labor disputes from stopping production. This is a job for the nation's lawmakers, not for its military authorities. Justice Robert Jackson concurred in the judgment but penned his now-famous analysis of presidential authority. Presidential powers are not fixed but fluctuate, he wrote, and presidential power depended on practical circumstances and the politics of the moment. Jackson then offered three broad scenarios to illustrate what he had in mind here. The first is when the president is strongest, and that's when he has authorization to act from Congress. The second is when Congress has not authorized the president to act. Then he must rely on his own independent powers, and this, Jackson said, puts him into a twilight zone in which his powers are uncertain. And in this area, any actual test of power, Jackson wrote, is likely to depend on the imperatives of events and contemporary imponderables rather than on abstract theories of law. Finally, when the president acts against the will of Congress, his power, Jackson wrote, is at its lowest ebb, and courts must tread with caution before sustaining a presidential claim of power in that situation over and against the will of Congress. Jackson then asks which scenario describes Truman's seizing of the steel mills and concludes that it fits within this third category. Congress didn't authorize the president to act, and all the existing statutory provisions about the seizure of industrial property don't cover presidential seizure for military production. But notice that the same act by the president in different circumstances would have yielded different results, and note Jackson's suggestion that the text alone is not enough to settle this question of executive power, that it's context-specific, and the context involves the politics between Congress and the president. Now, switching gears. When Youngstown was decided in 1952, the man representing the Harlem neighborhood of New York City in the U.S. House of Representatives was Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the immediate predecessor to Charlie Rangel, who then represented that same district from 1971 to 2017. Powell left his post, though, in less than ideal circumstances. A congressional committee in the 89th Congress had found that Powell had falsified expense reports and put his third former wife and the mother of his son on his congressional staff payroll, even though she admitted to the committee that she didn't work at all for the congressman. Despite that, Powell was re-elected by his district and reported for duty to begin the 90th congressional session in 1967. His colleagues in the House refused to swear him in or to seat him, and then he sued the Speaker of the House, John McCormick, a member of his own party, arguing that the House had a constitutional obligation to seat him and swear him in. How should the court sort this out? One option would have been to say that this is a political question, not one that's appropriate for judicial resolution, but that's not the path the Supreme Court took. 
With just one dissenting vote, the court agreed with Powell that the House had an obligation to seat him. And relevantly, Article One of the Constitution says that the House will be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members, and that it may punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. The background political situation was this. The House leadership wanted Powell gone, but they didn't have the necessary two-thirds vote to expel him from the House, and there had not been any other formal sanction against him. As Congressman Bob Eckert from Texas said at the time, As a practical matter, members who would not have denied Powell a seat if they were given the choice to punish him had to cast an I vote or else record themselves as opposed to the only punishment that was likely to come before the House. In other words, House leadership wanted him gone, They didn't have the votes to expel him constitutionally, but they did have a majority vote to refuse to seat him. The Supreme Court, looking at this case, then says two significant things. First, this is a justiciable question. It's not a political question. It's one the court is authorized by the Constitution and by federal law to hear. And that really is the separation of powers issue in this case. Second, the actual decision was that there is a constitutionally relevant difference between exclusion from the House, which is what happened to Powell, and expulsion from the House, which is what the Constitution authorizes. If two-thirds of the House wants to expel Powell, they can, but they have to swear him in and seat him first. And so Adam Powell was seated in the House in 1969, but he was defeated in the 1970 Democratic primary by Charlie Rangel, who then held the seat for the next 47 years. One of the major pieces of legislation that Adam Powell had an opportunity to vote on in his many years representing Harlem was the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952, passed the same year as Truman's steel seizure order and passed over Truman's veto. The roll call vote I found for that act in the Congressional Quarterly Almanac shows an X for Powell on the vote instead of a yay or nay. According to the key I read, this means that his declared stance was against, but they don't have a vote recorded for him. But didn't matter anyway, they had enough votes to override the presidential veto, and so this act goes into law. The 300-something page act contained an obscure provision that allowed the Attorney General of the United States to suspend the deportation of any alien found to be unlawfully in the U.S., The attorney general must then report the reasons for the suspension of deportation to Congress. And if either House of Congress then passes a resolution stating that it disagrees with the attorney general's decision, then, quote, the attorney general shall thereupon deport such alien in the manner provided by law. And you can see in this case a common thread moving through it, and that's the separation of government powers. Can Congress delegate this authority to the Attorney General and then reserve for itself a veto over the Attorney General's decision? Not only that, but a veto that can be exercised by the House or the Senate by itself, the so-called one-house legislative veto. That question isn't taken up by the Supreme Court for another three decades, in 1983, when the court heard the case of INS versus Chadha. Jagdish Chadha was of Indian descent. He held a British passport and he was admitted to the United States in 1966 on a student visa. He overstayed his visa when it expired in 1972, and after his deportation hearing, he applied for a suspension of his deportation according to this section of the Act. The Attorney General suspended his deportation, but the House then exercised its veto power by passing a resolution asking for Chadha's deportation. Chadha then protested that the House of Representatives does not have the authority to veto the Attorney General's decision here, and the Supreme Court agrees with him. The reasoning straightforward. In the Court's majority opinion, Justice Berger lays out the basic arguments. Article 1, Section 1 says that all legislative powers are vested in Congress. After Congress writes a law, it must then be presented to the President of the United States. The President can sign it, 
veto it or do nothing and let it become a law after 10 days, unless Congress is adjourned and then it's not a law. We call that a pocket veto. This is a kind of schoolhouse rocks civics lesson. But according to Berger, this is the constitutionally prescribed way we write laws in the United States. And as he said, these provisions in Article 1 are integral parts of the constitutional design for the separation of powers. The One House legislative veto, according to the court, bypasses this bicameralism requirement that both the House and the Senate pass a bill and the presentment requirement that the bill then goes to the president for his signature or his consideration and veto. It's a circumvention of the constitutional design for lawmaking, according to the court. But Justice Byron White in dissent made a point worth considering. He noted that the court's previous cases established, as he wrote, that by virtue of congressional delegation, legislative power can be exercised by independent agencies and executive departments without the passage of new legislation. If Congress may delegate legislative power to independent and executive agencies, White continued, It's most difficult to understand Article I as forbidding Congress from also reserving a check on legislative power itself. Absent the veto, the agencies receiving delegations of legislative or quasi-legislative power may issue regulations having the force of law without bicameral approval and without the president's signature. It's thus not apparent why the reservation of a veto over the exercise of that legislative power must be subject to a more exacting test. In both cases, White concluded, it's enough that the initial statutory authorizations comply with the Article I requirement. Justice White was saying, in other words, that he was okay with the broad delegations of legislative power to the executive branch, which have become a regular feature of modern governance. But for just that reason, he was also okay with the reservation of a legislative veto to main congressional oversight of the executive and the exercise of its delegated authority. Now, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I've thrown a lot at you in a short amount of time, so let me end by making some connections to things that we've already discussed, both historical and conceptual. First, as an interesting historical side note, Justice White is the only justice to have played in the NFL. He was drafted in the first round of the 1938 NFL draft. He then played professional football while he attended Yale Law School at the same time. And then he interrupted his studies at Yale and his professional football career to serve as an intelligence officer in the Navy during World War II. It was a different time back then. John Kennedy then appointed White to the Supreme Court in 1962, and he served there until his retirement in 1993. And it's Justice White whom Ruth Bader Ginsburg replaced on the court in 1993. On the conceptual side, each of these cases challenges us to think about the separation of powers and the degree to which modern governance involves a complex calculation about how to combine effective and efficient government with the prudential calculation that no one person or institution should exercise legislative, executive, and judicial power. As Madison wrote in Federalist 47, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. This is, at root, what often animates people's concerns with executive power, whether in the form of executive orders, such as Harry Truman's steel seizure order, or in the form of executive rulemaking, such as the delegated authority in the National Industrial Recovery Act, or more recently, in the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act that was the subject of the dispute in United States versus Gundy, which we discussed in a previous episode. And while we continue thinking about the separation of powers, we'll turn next to a different kind of issue with delegated power, the delegation of power by Congress to the judiciary to create an independent council to investigate the executive branch. And this brings us to a question, which we'll pick up next time. 
about the authority of Congress and the courts to investigate and potentially prosecute the President of the United States. 